On Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him and, falling at his feet, worshipped him. But Peter made him get up, saying, Stand up, I'm only a man. As he talked with him, he went in and found that many had assembled, and Peter said to them, You yourselves know it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, proclaiming peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. We are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. This is the word of the Lord. To really understand this story, you have to go back 800 years. 800 years before, a massive power north of Israel swept southward, rounded up the ten northern tribes, raped, plundered, intermarried with them, force-marched them away, replaced them with Assyrians. The Jews acquiesced, gave in, became Assyrians. History still speaks about the ten lost tribes of Israel. And then in 587, 586, the Babylonians came, modern-day Iraq, surrounded the city, laid siege to it, breached the walls, stripped the palace and the temple of everything of value, set fire to both of them, burned the city, burned the gates off the hinges, tumbled down the walls, and force-marched the best and brightest away to Babylon. All the way to Babylon... The priest, as they walked, talked to each other, what can we do to remain Jews? What must we do to remain Jews? We don't know how long we will be in Babylon. 400 years in Egypt, maybe 400 years in Babylon. What must we do? And they decided on three things. We must circumcise our little boys when they're eight days old. We must not eat like them. We must eat kosher. Every Friday at sundown, we will stop everything. Light the candles, say the prayers, break the bread, and remember the set-apart, that is, unlike any other God, who calls us to be holy and set-apart, unlike the rest of the world. Here at the very end of Matthew's gospel, these disciples know the word was, go ye into all the ethnics, is what it literally says. Go to all the ethnics, teaching, preaching, baptizing them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke tells the story. One afternoon, Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and centurion, of course, comes from the same Latin word as our century, means a hundred. The commander of a hundred, 
a powerful man, a, pen, a man of some real importance, at Caesarea Maritima, the Caesarea on the sea, where Pontius Pilate had lived, had a vision. An angel of the Lord said to this God-fearing man, that's what Luke calls him, this God-fearer who was generous and gave alms to the poor, saying, I want you to send emissaries south to Joppa. It's about 32 miles. There is a man there named Simon. He's living with another fellow named Simon who is a tanner, but this one is called the Rock. Go there. Tell him you need to hear what he needs to say. So he dispatches three. They start down the road along the Mediterranean to Joppa. About that time, Simon Peter decided, I'm feeling really hungry. Dinner was being prepared. He decided to take a nap until it was ready. And while he slept, a great sheet came down from heaven in a vision, and he saw it filled with four-legged animals and all the birds of the air. And Peter heard a voice saying, Get up, kill, and eat. And he said, Wait, I saw a pig in there. We don't eat pigs. I saw a crow in there. We don't eat crows. Never in my life have I eaten anything unclean. And the voice said, That which I call clean, do not call unclean. Moments later, a sheet coming down out of heaven, filled with four-legged animals and all the birds of the air. A voice, Get up, kill and eat. Not I, Lord. I saw a pig. I saw a crow. I never eat those kinds of things. I keep kosher. Don't you call unclean uh, what I'm calling clean. Happened a third time. And just as this happened the third time, knock at the door. Three from Caesarea Maritima saying, We're looking for a fellow named Simon, whom everyone calls the rock. Is he here? Well, yes, I am he. Well, the Lord spoke to Cornelius in a vision and told us to come to you that you had something Cornelius needed to hear. And Peter said, come in. These are Gentiles. They are unclean. And the Bible says he showed them hospitality, which means he either washed their feet or provided basin and towel. He fed them. He gave them a place to sleep. And the next morning, they start off to Caesarea. When they get there, Peter's amazed. Cornelius comes running out, falls down in front of him. Peter said, please, please, get up. I'm just a man. And then he sees that not only is Cornelius there, but his house is filled with people eager to hear what Simon is supposed to say to them. And he says to Cornelius, you know that I am a holy, set-apart Jew who's not to come into the house of a an unclean, profane, other than Jew, Gentile. But I had a vision, and I no longer can call unclean and profane anyone. Simon got the point. It wasn't really about animals and birds. It was about people, about people. Let's look at the story then as Luke tells us. Number one, he says, the Lord has shown me that he shows no partiality. 
that there are no people who are profane and unclean to God. Last Sunday after lunch, I got my Sunday paper. I don't ever get to the Sunday paper till after all my church work is done for the morning. And there was a big article about Chuck Colson's having died the day before. Now, you older ones will remember Chuck Colson. He was a person of privilege. He grew up in Massachusetts. He went to an Ivy League school, Brown, where he was graduated with honors. He went on to George Washington University Law School. He then went into the United States Marines and in no time was a captain. When he was 37 years old, the president of the United States, Richard Nixon, asked him to be chief counsel for the White House. And five years later, he was in a federal prison. At 42, he was in a federal prison for obstruction of justice in matters relating to the Watergate break-in and the Ellsworth Papers. And the next year, Chuck Holson wrote a book called Born Again born again. There were people who poo-pooed the book. Uh, a lot of people have a conversion once they get in prison. He's trying to have an early out. But in fact, when he did get out after having served his time, he founded a group called Prisoners International and spent 40 years traveling to prison after prison after prison, trying to improve conditions, trying to prepare those who were finally fulfilling their sentence, how they could live responsibly outside the prison. For 40 years, he put his arms around prisoner after prisoner and said, I know what's happening to you. I've been here. You are my brother. You are my sister. I'm working hard. God shows no partiality. Whether you graduated Ivy League, whether you never went to college in your life, God shows no partiality. He loves all his children the same. Therefore, Peter said, in any nation, in every nation, anyone who fears the Lord... Remember, Cornelius had been called a God-fearer by Luke... God-fearer. This word fear here means one who stands in awe. To stand in awe of God. Forty years ago, I was trying to learn how to do evangelism down in Texas. Uh, I mean, I really believe that I'm called to try to help people make decisions for God, not for God. For Christ, not for Christ. I'm supposed to help them come to a moment of decision. And I started going to sales seminars. How do people sell Chevrolets and Fords? How do people sell life insurance? How do they sell stocks and bonds? How do they help people move to a point of decision? I heard some really good speakers. One of the big names that long ago in Texas was a guy named Zig Ziglar. You ever hear him? Zig Ziglar was on top of the world at that point. In fact, his book was called Meet You at the Top. He lived in Dallas, taught a Sunday school class every Sunday at the First Baptist Church. Some thought he might have been better than Criswell. These two guys had it going, one preaching, one teaching the biggest Sunday school class in Dallas. When I saw Ziglar, he walked out on the stage. The spotlights just sparkled off his lapel. 
He had a lapel pin. It must have had a hundred diamonds in it. It was an era, an era of diamonds. I'll meet you at the top. That was his book. I'll meet you at the top. But Zig Ziglar had a daughter named Julie. I was reading Julie's story recently. When Julie was a junior high school, she started making bad decisions. Kim Fanter said to our parents of teenagers, it often happens about the sixth grade, seventh grade, start making bad decisions. That's what Julie did. She got in with the wrong crowd there in Dallas. By the time she was 18, she was married to a guy 36. Then she had a baby. And then this 36-year-old decided to treat her like a daughter but not like a kind and loving father would treat a daughter, like a mean and hateful, abusive father would treat a daughter. He started following her, restricting her, then finally beating her. And after five years, she ran. 23 years old, divorced with a child. For the next seven years, she tried hard to find a better man. And at age 30, she was sure she had found him. She, by this time, was working in an important job, socially drinking, more socially drinking, her husband socially drinking. And then she decided after several years that her husband was an alcoholic, that he had a severe problem. She called the doctor and said, what do I do? He gave her a number, sent her to Al-Anon. She went to Al-Anon, and in the very first meeting, they were saying, you can't cure your husband can't make him well, what you need to do is go home tonight and say to him, you have a problem and I'm turning you over to God. Then you brush your teeth and go to bed. That's what Julie did. Woke up her husband. He didn't tell her right away, but the very next day, he looked up a number in the phone book, went to a noon meeting of an AA group. And a few nights later, he told her about it. Meanwhile, Julie was going to Al-Anon, but the more she told of her own story when she felt like telling it, these women were convinced that she was an alcoholic as well. And so Julie and her husband decided to take that first step. We have a problem we cannot solve. There is one who can. And so we will surrender as much of us as we know how to as much of him as we can comprehend. And Julie wrote, just recently we celebrated our 25th year of sobriety. We've both been sober 25 years because every day when we open our eyes we say we have problems we cannot solve. So we will surrender as much of us as we know how to as much of God as we can comprehend. Number three, I believe that in every nation, Paul said, those who fear God and do what is right, who do what is right. Thursday night a week ago, Gail and I, some of you, were at Temple Israel for Yom HaShoah, the annual remembrance of the Holocaust. The Jews don't like the word Holocaust. It means the burning. They prefer the word Shoah, which means chaos. 
that as chaos reigned until God spoke and brought order, chaos came again during the Nazi years. Every year the program is outstanding, deeply moving. This year was no exception. This year they brought all the way from Jerusalem, Dr. Mordecai Paldiel. For 25 years he was an important official at Yad Vashem Museum in Jerusalem. His primary task trying to find and verify the Gentiles in Europe who had put their own lives in danger by helping Jews. In 25 years, he was able to document 23,000 Gentiles. In different communities, sometimes little towns, sometimes big cities, who knew, because there were huge posters everywhere the Nazis conquered, if you aid, abet, help, hide a Jew, you will be shot in the head immediately. We were at the new Yad Vashem in Jerusalem 14 months ago. It's even better than the old one we had seen five times before. The new museum is truly amazing. One of the interesting things, a bicycle hanging from the ceiling, a bicycle from the 1940s, ridden by a teenage girl. Her Catholic priest had said to her late one afternoon after Catholic school, I have a problem. I have good information that the Nazis will seize control of our little village within seven days. Sunday is two days away. I need to get a message to every priest in my diocese that they are to stand in their pulpit this Sunday before the Nazis arrive and tell all the Roman Catholic Christians there, you must do everything you can to save the Jews. The mails are already being watched, he said. The telephone calls are being monitored. I need someone whom they would not suspect to hand deliver this message to 35 Catholic churches, 35 priests, and get it done today. This teenage girl got on her bike and rode to 35 churches and handed the priest the bishop's letter. And there were dozens and dozens of Jews who were saved. One woman was living in an apartment building. She saw the Gestapo come. They went up the stairs and into the apartment above her where a family of Jews lived. Without another thought, she went running up the stairs, screamed at the two teenagers of this Jewish couple, Didn't I call you to dinner? Do I have to call you more than once? Get yourselves downstairs for dinner. Took them by the hand downstairs. The Gestapo arrested the mother and the father. They were sent to a camp and they died. She saved those two teenage kids. Our own Ava Unterman here in Tulsa, a survivor, who was arrested with her family just for being Jews when she was six years old, who survived six years in the camps, was liberated at 12, told the congregation that Thursday night, one night after working so hard, she's a nine-year-old kid. I got back to my room SS locked the door behind us and I discovered a piece of bread under my pillow. The next little girl had a piece of bread under her pillow. 
the only ones who had keys to these rooms, who let us out in the morning and sent us off to work and locked us in at night, were the SS. It had to have been one of them. And after we savored our little piece of bread, we heard a gunshot and were told the next day the SS discovered the one who had left the bread and had shot him in the head. For you and me, doing right is so much easier. So much easier today than it has been for many people in many different places. Will we do the right thing? Peter said, If you fear God and you do the right thing, then you will be acceptable to God. I know, he said, because let me tell you about Jesus of Nazareth. And he told Jesus' whole story in just a couple of sentences there. And how he was hanged on a tree and really did die. And then he was raised again. We know you can be acceptable. You, Gentiles, can be acceptable if you fear God and do what's right. In fact, Luke concludes by saying, And while Peter was speaking the Holy Spirit descended upon them all. That spirit Jesus had promised that would continue his work descended upon them all. Dr. Craig Barnes is a professor at Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Theological Seminary. Before that, he was a Presbyterian preacher. He went to pastor a new church, he said, in Pennsylvania, the very first Sunday. He'd rushed to the door to shake hands with as many as he could as they were departing. One fellow said, I want to meet you. You're probably the guy who's going to perform my funeral. And he said, I got to know him well. In the next three years, he had just been diagnosed with very acute, very aggressive leukemia. And for three years, I saw him go through one horrendous procedure after another. And at every stage, he would simply say, I think Dorothy and Toto were on to something. We're not in Kansas anymore. Every new experience he had sort of dismissed by saying, not in Kansas anymore. And one day, shortly before he died, he said to me, you know, the scariest moments I've been through were the moments I came to learn the most about me and how much I really trust God. After he died, his wife had a tombstone put up in the cemetery. On one side, his name, day was born, day he died, and on the other, not in Kansas anymore. 